Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. Welcome to our service. I too want to just extend a special welcome to our visitors. We're happy you chose to worship with us this morning. I'm here to talk to you a little this morning about a theme that keeps recurring when we read through John 14, 15, and 16. Our Sunday school devotional leader, our Sunday school teacher, alluded to it this morning some, and I would like to talk about it even a little more. You can turn to John 14 if you wish. I'm going to jump through these these, um, chapters quickly, just picking out verses here and there that talk about what I would like to talk about this morning. John 14, 15, and 16, it seems that Christ is talking here to his disciples in the upper room shortly after... He had his um, uh, chapter 13, of course we know, that's the uh, feet washing um, introduction that that Christ performed there on his disciples. Then he continues to teach them for a while. I'm going to read John 14, 16 to get us started. And and this is just breaking in, and, and the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to pick up on the theme. It says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth in you and shall be in you. Jumping down to verse 25, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father shall send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Chapter 15, 26. But when the Comforter is come, who I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, or if I go not away, the Comforter will not come. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. You know by now what I'm getting at. I want to talk to you a little bit about this abiding comforter that Jesus is informing his disciples about. It would be interesting to know what the disciples picked up, what what they were uh, connecting with as Jesus talked to them about this person, this comforter, um, what they, what, what, they connected with in their language what did they think about whenever Jesus talked about this parakletos or whatever it is in the Greek um, however he would have said that so uh, I understand it means uh, an intercessor or a counselor and an advocate Jesus says in verse 16 of chapter 14 that it would be another comforter he's alluding to the fact that at this point he's their comforter but there's going to be another one coming and he tells them that um, um, he has to go away so this person can come, so this comforter can come. And when this comforter comes, he's going to do wonderful things for him. Um, right now, when, the, when he is the comforter is here, if he's over in Galilee and you're in Judea, the comforter isn't with you. But the time would come that this new comforter would be with everyone everywhere, no matter where you were, he would be there with you. And it says he'd actually be in you. Um, and he would do wonderful things for him, such as um, you know, when they were brought before judges and rulers and and kings. It says that 
You don't have to be really disturbed about what you're going to say or put a lot of forethought into that because when that happens, um, you, you're going you're gonna to be able to remember things and you're going to speak things that aren't of yourself. It'll be, it'll be stuff that the Spirit, this Comforter, will, um, will bring forth, will, will bring to your memory and you'll talk things that you didn't know you could even do. You would do things you couldn't do. Well, it would be interesting to know what you think of when you think of the Holy Spirit. Um, if I were to ask you what the Holy Spirit did in your life for you this past week, what would your, what would your answer be? Um, in the last year, in your lifetime, what would your answer be? I have a few questions here that I'm not going to answer, but I'm going to ask them because I want you to think about them. And as we talk about this this morning, and by the way, I'm not going to get through everything I'd like to say this morning, so there's probably going to be a part two coming to this at some point. But I'm going to ask you some questions here, and you think about them. So is the realization and expression of the Holy Spirit in the early church, as it was experienced in the early church, particularly Acts 2, is that something that we should still realize today? Is that, should that be an expression and a realization that we still have today? Um, is the speaking of tongues in Acts 2 the bona fide sign that you have received the Spirit? So I'll just leave that. You think about that. So how would you respond to this question? Are you filled with the Spirit? If somebody said, are you filled with the Spirit... Would you stutter? Would you say yes? Would you say no? How would you describe that? Does everyone experience the Holy Spirit in the same way? Is the feeling of the Holy Spirit a once and done thing? What does it mean to be filled? How do you measure it? How do you quantify it? We measure a lot of things in gallons and bushels and acres. Do you measure, is that how you measure the Holy Spirit? What gifts has the Holy Spirit given to you? Could you name them if somebody asked you to name them? Should you be able to name them? Can you confuse the gifts of the Spirit with something that is not of the Spirit? Are gifts easily identifiable? Should I be able to name your gift? Is it possible for a church to function without the Spirit? What would happen if the Spirit was taken away from everyone at Prairie Mennonite Church this morning? I can't remember who said this, but it, it, was, it was a quote, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote it as closely as I remember it, and it couldn't be quite verbatim, but somebody said this. If the Spirit of God withdrew himself from the church, 90% of the church's programs would continue unobstructed unobstructed. The Spirit would never be missed because He was never really a factor anyway. It's impossible that that could be true. That makes me shudder to think of that. Are you and I expressing the fruit of the Spirit? Can I ascertain that? Somewhat the impetus for this topic, uh, for, for me sharing this with you this morning, comes from some research, 
some reading and some personal wrestling that I have done over the last while. It seems that conservative Christians in general, and maybe conservative Mennonites in particular, I'm not sure, you think about this too, are accused of stifling the work of the Spirit because of the emphasis on a disciplined, unified expression of a Christian walk and an insistence upon simple, unadulterated obedience to the Word. Some people say that hinders the Spirit. And that begs, begs an answer. Is that true? Is there any truth to that at all? Do you believe that you and I today could maybe use a better understanding and interaction with the Spirit? Is that possible? Quoting another, um, this time a Mennonite pastor, he said something like this. He said, sometimes he believes that our understanding and interaction with the Holy Spirit is more of a theological treatise than something we experience. I don't know how you feel about that. Is that. Could that be true? Another thing that I recently, I say recently, within the last year, six months, I became aware of a movement in the country. You, you, I, don't, I don't know that it's widely known, but the reason I, I stumbled across this is because I had heard that there was a particular person, in this case a woman, who was a pastor in this particular church, and I was curious if it was the case, and so I, I did a little Googling online, and I found out it was the case. And the thing that, that hit me so hard about that is because if I would say this woman's father's name, 95% of you here today would know who, it was, who that person is. Okay? And, this, and this, this person has a background very, very similar to you, to you and I today. And as I, as I looked at this, at this church, this movement, whatever, I found that there was a, I, should, I don't know if I want to say a lot, but there was a fair number of names would come up in this particular website that were obviously Mennonite slash Amish names. So I decided I was going to research and see what these people believed a little bit because I was, I was curious as to the as to the attraction, I guess, what would be the attraction to, uh, to a movement like this for, for folks that would maybe have a background somewhat similar to us? And uh, so I listened to a, a few of their sermons and so on just to, to get an idea what they, what they stood for and so on. And it became rather clear that they did believe, this movement believes, that when a person pursues the Holy Spirit and an infilling of him that it is, it is important that you don't get bogged down with the jots and tittles of the word of God. Now that, that bothered me. I have to say that bothers me a bit. And what, what they would uh, um, proclaim, I guess, is that what God really desires is freedom in worship and of course that would uh, express itself and things like dancing, clapping, shouting, rock music, and the like. I think, I'm, I think I'm speaking to the choir here this morning. I don't think that anybody's there. I don't think anybody would agree with that. 
But it does make me wonder why, why people do this switch up. What's the attraction? What's what's going on here? I guess. It is also of some interest to me that back in the 60s and 70s, whenever the broader Mennonite Church was quickly losing uh, some very fundamental biblical doctrines, and many and many of the long-held practices of the Mennonite Church were being discarded, that in place of that, there was a, uh, a real tendency towards what we know as charismatic type of worship and expression. And I'm just going to read to you a little bit what one historian um, says, and, and he's, he's, um, he's actually writing about a high school in Lancaster, Menon- uh, Lancaster Mennonite High is what he's writing about. And uh, this was written in 92, uh, 50-year anniversary of Lancaster Mennonite High. And, he, and he's pointing back to this era in the 70s. I, I just want to quote him because it was an interesting, he had an interesting perspective. He said this, The erosion of traditional historical symbols of Mennonite identity, and, and this is what I thought was interesting. He said it left a vacuum in the soul. And he said in, and I'm going to not read everything he said here, but one of the, one of the ways that vacuum, in his mind, was, uh, was attempted to be re- replaced was by what he calls the charismatic winds. He says, These breezes brought freedom of expression, emotional spontaneity, and biblical simplicity to some who had strained under what they considered strict regulation of earlier years. And so, Holy, Holy Spirit conferences, Jesus rallies, and new charismatic congregations all reflected this new spiritual flavor. At a Jesus rally, it attracted some 30,000 attendees, many being Mennonite youth. And uh, it says, The rising charismatic movement kindled spirited discussions in Bible classes on spiritual gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I could go on and read more, but I'll, I'll quit there. I guess the thing that stood out to me is how this particular writer said that there was a, when there was a shift and a, and a move away from what we would consider fundamental doctrinal biblical practice and uh, persuasion, that it left a vacuum in the soul. And I just thought that was just an interesting way of putting it. Okay. I think when people seek a union with God... But they don't want to have true heart obedience to God and his word. It will indeed leave a vacuum in the soul. And it seems to me that people try to make this up with noise and other things. And they say, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. That's what that is now. It seems that's a a possibility. What I would like to do the rest of our time here, and, and I guess I want to say this. I want to be careful that that we don't judge people. But on the, on the other hand, sometimes a person needs to look out and consider what's happening and say, is this really of God? Could it be? Could it possibly be of God? And wrestle with that a bit. I would like to just go through the Old Testament and the Gospels and just briefly look at what the Holy Spirit did in these in the Old Testament, just briefly, and in the Gospels, and see what we can learn about the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life, 
in his teaching and how he worked in the Old Testament a bit. And then the next time I would like to look a little closer at what he is maybe doing and how he expresses himself today. I think it's interesting that we only have to go to the second verse in Genesis until the Spirit of God is mentioned. And you know that. It says, The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. We go to chapter 6, right shortly before the flood, and this is what the Lord says. He says, My Spirit will not always strive with man. So evidently, the Spirit of God was at work among men some way, somehow, and it seems that the carnality of man had sunk to such a low that apparently God's Spirit was no longer effective. It was not having any effect. And so God said, I'm not going to strive with man forever. I'm gonna, it seems like he's saying I'm going to withdraw my spirit. Just something for you to think about. Noah built his boat there for many, many years. And it says he preached righteousness while he was doing it, but he didn't have one convert. Now you think about this. Could it be possible that the Spirit of God had withdrawn itself from people and so Noah's preaching had nothing to attach itself to? That's conjecture. I don't know that. I'm not sure if that's the case or not, but we know that it was only Noah and his family that were saved. It's no news to you that in the Old Testament, there was only certain people that it talks about having a special infilling of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to name nearly all of them, but one that comes to mind very quickly is this man by the name of Bezalel in Exodus 31. And um, God says, I have filled him with my spirit in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in cutting of stones to set them, and in carving of timber to work out all manner of workmanship. Now, I don't know what this Bezalel's background was, but it seems like, or why God chose him. That, that part we don't know. But what we do know is that God said, I'm going to put my spirit in this man, and this man's going to be able to do wonderful things when it comes to the architect of the furniture and the, uh, the parts of the tabernacle that take some, take some work. And if you read through that and see some of these things that this Bezalel did, it was absolutely amazing. You know, hammer a candlestick out of a, of a hunk of gold. It's just one big thing. How do you do that? I, I'm not sure. But it seems like he needed the spirit to get this stuff done. I, I just think it's interesting. And then there's also some very unlikely people that it says so specifically that the spirit of God was upon them. One was Saul. Um, in his early days, you know, he's walking along and he's hunting for his, his uh, father's donkeys. And you know how he met Samuel. Then he, um, he's going back home again. And it says that he ran by some prophets. And these people came out prophesying. It said the Spirit fell on Saul. He did too. He prophesied too. He just had this little experience there. And um, Samson, of all unlikely people. And, and it seems like Samson was such a carnal man. It seems like he had such problems with women. And you, you know his issues. But yet it says the Spirit of God would fall on this man sometimes, and, uh, and he did mighty things. So how that all worked, um, I'm not sure, but that's what we know. There was other people too, and I'm just not going to name them. There's a very, very interesting um, few verses in Nehemiah 9 where Ezra is, is praying here, and he says this. 
He's talking about how God was so merciful to them and led them through the wilderness in the past and everything. And he says this in verse 20 in chapter 9. He says, Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them, and withheld not thy manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. It's interesting to me the perception that, uh, that Ezra had. He saw, the way he saw it, he said, You gave your good spirit to instruct these people. We don't think of it that way. We, we think of Moses and his tablets of stone, and we think of Aaron and, and, and different people like that, but Ezra says, it was your good spirit. Very, very perceptive person, I think. And then, of course, we can't uh, forget about the prophecies that um, many of the prophets told about a time that was coming when there was going to be a new spirit. I'm going to read you just a few verses out of uh, Ezekiel that, um, that, that Ezekiel prophesied. In Ezekiel 11:19, it says, And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statues and keep my ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And if you move on into Ezekiel 36:25, it says this, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you will be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statues, and keep my judgments, and do them. Now, is there anything that, that you're connecting here? God says the time's going to come where you're going to get a new spirit. It's going to be different. It's going to be new, and it's going to be in you. And what's it going to do? Is it going to cause people to clap or speak in tongues or other somewhat emotional things? That's not what it says. He says, when this happens, it will cause you to walk in my statutes, keep my judgments, and do them. I'm not sure where people are making the connection when they say the jots and tittles of God's word don't really matter. It's, it's the emotional freedom of worship. Folks, I'll leave that where it is, but this prophecy says that this Holy Spirit of God would, would call people to a high level of obedience. I'll, I'll leave that with you. You think about that. And of course we have those very familiar words in Joel that Peter quoted in Acts 2, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Now, if there's one thing that stands out to me in these couple of verses, it is the fact that there would be no discrimination on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Sons, daughters, old men, young men, servants, handmaids. Um, your name didn't have to be Bezalel, okay? It was going to happen to anybody that wanted it to, okay? All right, so now let's go into the New Testament, and let's look a little bit at the Holy Spirit in Jesus' experience. If you go to Luke 1, it's a very long chapter, but the, the word Holy Spirit shows up many, many times in this chapter. You have a very active Holy Spirit. 
<clears throat> Zechariah is told uh, right out of the gate that uh, John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. The angel came and said, you're going to have the son, his name's going to be John, and from the womb, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 35, Mary is told that she was going to conceive, and this conception would be of the Holy Spirit. A few verses later, in verse 41, Mary goes and visits Elizabeth, and it says this babe leaped in her womb, and she was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak uh, somewhat prophetically. Verse 67, John is born, and when uh, Zacharias' tongue is loosed, it said he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to prophesy. He had some things to say there. And then in chapter 2 and verse 25, we're talk, we are told of this old man, Simeon, that was at the temple, and he was ministering there, and it said the Holy Ghost was upon him and told him that he would live to see Jesus. And he had that opportunity there, you know, to, to see Jesus. And he knew that. He knew Jesus. He recognized him when he saw him. So, very, very active, it, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the inception of this new, of this new era. Uh, we, we have the Holy Spirit being mentioned over and over again. The next appearance of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life comes whenever Jesus is baptized. And I'm going to read you a couple of different verses out of a couple of different Gospels, just to get uh, some different perspective. Luke 3.21, it says, And now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John's account puts it like this, And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon me, and I knew him not. But he, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said to me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then in John 3, uh, John has these words to say about Jesus. He says, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. So just a consolidation of these few verses is that evidently John was told was not told who Jesus was going to be, but he was told that when you see the Spirit descending on this person, you'll know that that's Jesus. And so whenever Jesus was baptized, John saw the Spirit descending. And it says like a dove. It doesn't say it was a dove. It says it was like a dove. So I'm not sure exactly what that means. But the Spirit was like a dove and uh, came and abode on him. And, and that's, that's how John had it affirmed to him that this was indeed Jesus. It's also interesting that Luke's account says that while he was praying, the, uh, the Spirit descended on him. Why a dove? Well, we all know that doves represent humility, innocence, tenderness, peace. And isn't that a real characteristic of Jesus' ministry? Jesus himself said this in, John, in Luke 4.18. He says, the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those that are bruised. Now John said that Jesus was given the Spirit of God without measure. Jesus had the Spirit in a limitless way. 
Consider this, in times past, as we mentioned, it seemed that the Spirit came in a limited way. You know, he came to Bezalel, he came to Samson, he came to Saul, he came to this person, that person. And they had the, the Spirit of God for a specific assignment and for a specific time. It says that Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. Now, I have a question for you, and I'm not going to answer the question because I want you to ponder it. <clears throat> is it possible for you and I to have the Spirit without measure? Is, is that possible? Or was this comment about Jesus and having the Spirit without measure, was that just Jesus? I might address that the next time, but you think about that. And, if you have, and by the way, if any of you have any comments or, or uh, you disagree with anything I'm saying, I'd be, I would love to hear it. I, I'm, in fact, it would probably be best if I would open this up for open discussion. All right, so moving forward in Jesus' life here quickly. In Mark 1.12, it says that Jesus was baptized and he came up out of the water. And this is what it says. And immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan and was with the wild beasts and angels ministered unto him. Now that was where the Spirit drove this man immediately after he got him. Um, I believe the Spirit can send men into places that aren't pleasant, aren't physically desirable, and can be quite lonely and nothing spectacular or showy. And that's where the Spirit led Jesus. I think it's also interesting how Peter summarizes to Cornelius in Acts 10, when he's trying to summarize Jesus' activities. Listen to what he said in verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. So he said that's, that's what he had. He had Holy Ghost and with power. And here's what he did. He said he went around doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Now, now is that all Jesus did? He just did good. And he just, he just healed people that were, or, you know, healed people that were uh, oppressed with the devil. Is that how you would summarize Jesus' activities? Well, I think that's interesting. That that's, that's what Peter thought would be the best explanation to Cornelius. Doing good and ministering to people that were oppressed of the devil. Can you and I today do good and minister to people that are oppressed of the devil? We, we better be able to do that if we're filled with the Spirit. I believe that. All right. Now let's just briefly look at some of Jesus' teaching on the Spirit. And I'm just going to just kind of move through this. I've just picked out out of the four Gospels, times when Jesus specifically addressed the Spirit. And I want to see what we can learn from this. In Matthew 10, verse 19, these very familiar words, again, when Jesus is talking about how they would be delivered up and uh, to kings and so on, he said, For it is, not for you, it is not you that speak, but the Spirit that your Father giveth you that speaketh in you. All right, I already commented on that in the beginning of this talk, and so I won't say much more. But the Spirit was going to give these believers an unnatural ability to remember things that they needed at just the right time. And it wouldn't be of themselves, it would be of the Spirit. In Luke chapter 11, and you, you can turn to that if you want to, um, this is a very interesting uh, scripture here that Jesus talks about the Spirit. And... It would, be, it would be a talk in itself, so I'm just not going to say a lot about it. 
But there's three, in, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 13, that's the first paragraph of this chapter. The first few verses here, Jesus is giving what we would know as somewhat of the condensed version of the Lord's Prayer. And in verse 3, he says, Give us day by day our daily bread. And then in verse 5, he goes on with a story about this friend that, that has another friend nearby. And, and his friend came at midnight, and he needed bread for his friend. He didn't have any, any bread, so he went over to his neighbor, and he knocks on his door at this, this unearthly hour and says, Give me bread for my friend. And, and you know the story. The friend wasn't really excited about it, but he, he decided he'd do it. So he got up and gave him bread, and this, this man took the bread back to, his, to these travelers that had stopped in. And um, in verse 8 it says, Yet for importunity he will rise and give as many as he needeth. All right? And in verse 9 says, And I say, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Verse 10, Everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth. He that knocketh it shall be opened. And then in verse 11 he says, If any of you have a son and... Um, he asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a scorpion? Or an egg or whatever there? And um, then in verse 13, he says, If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Now, it, it's clear in the Bible, we, we haven't got there yet, but it's very clear in, in, in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, that the Holy Spirit is given to a person when he yields his life to Jesus. He's given that gift. But this text talks of asking for the Holy Spirit. And it also talks about receiving the Holy Spirit when one asks for it. Now, there are some that would, that would use the scripture and, and use it to uh, support their idea that one should, should ask for special infillings of the Holy Spirit to do wonderful things, especially the, the folks that are on the somewhat the charismatic Pentecostal types. They, they, that's kind of their theme, and they go to the scripture to support that. And there's others that are on the other side of the whole thing that say, no, whatever the Holy Spirit is at your time of conversion, that's what it is, and you don't need to ask for any more. That, that's it. You don't, you don't need to do that anymore. You got it. What you got, you got, and that's it. Now, I want you to think about this. I'm going to propose that perhaps the truth is somewhere in the middle. There's a few things we can deduct from this, this passage. Number one, God will ultimately be the giver of this gift. All right? Um, and so just keep that in mind. But... In verse 3 it says, give us day by day our daily bread. Okay, now I know that perhaps you could, you could say that's daily literal bread. But when you take the bread and you think about how bread is kind of the theme of, of these three stories here. Could, could it be that, that in, a, in a sense that, that Jesus is saying, there's nothing wrong with on a daily basis just praying, oh God, you know, I, I need your spirit today. I need your, I need your direction." Um, you know, lead me today. Is it ever wrong to yield oneself to complete obedience and submissiveness and to ask for more yieldedness to the Spirit of God and, and His work in your life? It seems to me that what, what could be wrong with that? I, I'm not sure that there could be anything wrong with that. 
You know, it talks about, in, in a later um, book, it talks about quenching the Spirit. And John talks about how Jesus would baptize people with the Holy Spirit and fire, okay? So when you think about a fire, you, you, you stoke that fire, you feed that fire, that fire gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it becomes quite a fire, right? It can do mighty things. Well, if we ask for more of the Spirit and we yield ourselves, uh, and I think that's the key word. The key word is yielding ourselves to the Spirit, not so much what, you know, wonderful things the Spirit will do to us, but just laying ourselves to God. I just think that um, it will grow into a bigger and bigger flame. Now, that, that's, what, that's my proposition. That's my understanding. And if you disagree with me, you, you please tell me. I'd be, I'd be interested to, to discuss that with you. So I'll leave that, but I, I think that there is something to this thing of, of asking and receiving. And the other thing is, you can ask and ask and ask and ask, but what about receiving? What about just receiving it as well? That's part of it. All right, in John 3, very, very familiar verses here, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he, he likens the spirit to wind. And he says, the wind blows where it listeth, you hear the sound, you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. What is the lesson here, perhaps? Well, you think about the wind comes from all different directions, it comes with varying degrees of intensity, and sometimes the wind doesn't blow at all, right? It's, it's not there. It, it's just no wind. No one can argue the effects of wind. Nobody, if, if an F4 tornado comes through, nobody's going to say it's not windy. It's windy. There's wind. It's happening. Things are happening. Big things are happening, right? You can't see it, but you can sure see the effects. I think these are all parts of the way the Spirit works. Um, it can come from various directions, various degrees of intensity. No one will argue the work of the Spirit when it is working. Another thing about the wind is it can't be held back. It will do its thing. And I would suggest that the same thing will happen when a man has the Holy Spirit. The man will not be able to be held back. Peter and John said, we can't help but say the things we have seen and heard. Why, why couldn't they? They were just filled with the Spirit. It just came out. It couldn't be held back. All right, another, another one I'd like to just look at briefly is this one about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And this is brought out in Mark 12, or I'm sorry, Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 12. And th this has been one that many have grappled with. Um, how do we know when we blaspheme the, the, the Holy Spirit? How can I know when I have committed that unpardonable sin? You know, I talk, Jesus says, you know, there's, everything will be forgiven except that one. That one you, you cannot be forgiven. How, what, what is this? Well, I think Mark 3 brings out a very, very important context to this, to this um, particular teaching. Just prior to Jesus saying this in Mark 3.29, Jesus has just been accused of casting out demons by the devil. And Jesus said, look, how can that be? A kingdom divided against itself won't stand. If I'm casting out devils by the devil himself, it doesn't make sense. Think through this. It doesn't make any sense. And then he says uh, about this blasphemy in, in verse 29. Now, now think with me a little bit on this. 
The Pharisees here were, were unrighteously condemning Jesus and saying, you're doing what was the work of the Spirit. You're doing it by the devil. The devil is, is what's causing you to do this. Well, they were dead wrong. They were assigning the devil the actually what was the work of the Spirit. Could the thing work vice versa? When we assign to the Spirit the work of the devil. Okay, just to put it in layman's terms. I, I thought of two times in the book of Acts where perhaps the Holy Spirit was blasphemed. And, and you, you think about this as well. In Acts 5, we have Ananias and, and Sapphira coming through. And you know that story. And two times to Ananias and Sapphira... Peter says, why has it entered your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In other words, why, why are you acting like you are, you are being moved by the Spirit to, to be dishonest? That, that's not the way the Spirit works. And, and you know the story. They, those folks lost their lives over that. Could that have possibly been blaspheming the Holy Spirit? How about Simon in Acts 8? Whenever he saw these apostles going around and laying their hands on people and they'd receive the Holy Spirit and he started going after them and said look I'll give you money I'll, I'll give you money for this power and the apostles said no no you won't he said your money perish with you because you have thought the gift of God can be, per can be purchased with money repent therefore of thy wickedness and pray God that perhaps the thought of thy heart may be forgiven thee for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Okay, so consider with me some of the things I've mentioned earlier in this talk. When people trivialize or clearly abandon clear, clear biblical teaching, and then they say that's the leading of the Spirit and insist that what they're experiencing are the signs and wonders of the Spirit, Folks, is it possible? Is it possible that that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Is that possible? You think about that. John fifteen twenty six again. When the Comforter comes, he will testify of me. It's not going to be anything new. Till I come back, whatever the Word of God says, that's what the Holy Spirit will speak. All right. In John 7, 37, in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture says, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. All right, so the, here we learn that the Spirit would only come once Jesus was glorified. It seems that a person would have to recognize this thirst. Many didn't know. Many still don't know. Many don't care. But to that person that was thirsty and recognized that thirst, there was this gift of the Spirit that was available to him. And there was only one way to quench that, and that was through Jesus. I believe that when one models Jesus' life, obeys his words, accepts his salvation, that that thirst is quenched. What's the result? The result says rivers of living water will flow from this person and flow out 
and bless those who interact with him. You know what? I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience has been that a person that I know is filled with the Spirit is a very pleasant person to be around. The rivers just flow. I enjoy that. Uh, I hope that I can exude that as well. It's a wonderful experience. He becomes a channel that directs people to the real living water. John 14, 16, another one here. And I will pray the Father. He will give you another comforter. Even the spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive. All right, now let's go to John 16, 8. It says, when the spirit comes, he will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Now, that seems like a contradiction. The world can't receive him, but when he comes, he's going to reprove them. So what's Jesus teaching here? The Spirit cannot be active in the world as a comforter or a counselor, but he is an agent of reproof. I don't know the works of the Spirit in the world. I don't know where conscience starts and stops, what the Spirit all may be doing in people's lives, but he's at work and he's reproving. I would suggest that perhaps more than we know, we become the venue through which the Spirit reproves the world. Consider Jesus' teaching when he said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Now, that's, you think that through. They're going to observe us. They don't have the Spirit, but when they see us, they're going to end up glorifying God. How does that all work? Peter says something very similar. He says, You have a good conscience that whereas the world speaks of you as evildoers, they will be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. The last one I have on Jesus' teaching. Then Jesus said again to them, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. All right, so I forget who it was. Somebody alluded to this verse earlier this morning. And it's interesting how he breathed on them and he said, receive the Spirit. Well, did they receive the Spirit at that point? Uh, it seems like they had to wait till Acts 2 till they actually received the Spirit. It's what it seems like happened. But I think there's maybe some, some um, symbolism here. When God created man, he breathed into him the breath of life and man became a living soul. I wonder if there's not some symbolism here to that new birth. Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive the Spirit. In a symbolic way, I think when a person becomes converted, Jesus breathes on them and the Spirit is received. Now that's, that's conjecture again, but I wonder if there isn't some symbolism there. It's interesting that he didn't say, I give it you or I'm going to force it upon you. He said, you receive it. You receive it. There's a difference there between something being forced in your hands or you receiving something willingly. If you receive something, you also have the option of rejecting it. Make sure that we are receiving the Spirit. And then he ends up there. He says, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Again, that is a talk in and of itself. 
But I'll just summarize it this way. It seems that Jesus is indicating that there was going to be a dimension of discernment and authority that was soon going to be coming to the church with this new spirit. They were going to have the ability to ascertain who were followers, who were not, and so on. Well, I'm going to crash land it right there. I had a little bit more to share, but the clock won't stop. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop with that. And uh, I hope this has been somewhat beneficial to you. And, and again, I want to stress that if you disagree with anything I said this morning, or if I spoke anything in error, I, I, I wish to be corrected. Uh, this, this topic is one that I don't really even feel qualified to speak to, and yet it is such a part, such an integral part of our experience that I, I don't think we can avoid it either. And so, Lord bless you as you are filled with the Spirit, and you, um, you enjoy His presence in, in your life.